0: Careful
2: here. <laughs> get a okay. oh,
3: here we go. We're just standing on the banks of the Red River and uh, I'm looking out and I can see the uh, south perimeter and you can probably hear the cars on on the recording <laughs> and uh, we're just uh, on a path and just through the shrubs here there's quite a few ducks on this uh, piece of open water just a quick look here looks like all uh, male and female mallards. Uh, sometimes if, if you're...
2: Where are you looking? Oh, there. Yeah, right there, yeah.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay,
2: so maybe I'm not your average birder, but who is? I know,
3: Bailey, do you care to take a guess? How many?
0: Uh, well, we can only see a small snippet of that open
3: water. Yeah.
2: Bailey and Justin here want you to know that birding is for everyone, and their walks make the hobby that much more accessible.
0: I wanna estimate. There's probably about like sixty there.
3: Yeah, that's my guess too.
0: Well, to the
2: untrained birding eye, they looked like little lumps of rocks to me. <laughs> <laughs> we can move. Yeah. Join us as we take a walk through a park on a winter's day to birdwatch. Bailey and Justin are two of our guides today, encouraging us to step outside, try something new, because nature has a place for you.
0: <laughs> welcome to the world of
2: birding. I'm an urban Indigenous person. Don't judge me. Tansé, Anin, Boujou. Hello and welcome. This is Unreserved. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today on Radio Indigenous, Sandy Ward grew up with the idea that getting out on the land meant berry picking or hunting. But in the end, it's snowboarding that connects her to the sacred mountain of her people. It's pretty powerful to be able to go up there
1: and introduce myself to the mountain and ski it. Need a
2: little warm up after that run? How about a little maple sugar to sweeten your cup? In the community of Hiawatha, Caleb Musgrave is getting ready for the sugar bush season.
4: Today we're checking traps, uh, getting some materials that I need to make some birch bark baskets for the upcoming sugarbush season.
2: And here in Winnipeg, two birders bring their passion and traditional knowledge to a brand new flock of bird
3: nerds. You're really in the moment when you're out here looking for birds.
0: It's really an active experience for them to to learn how to ground themselves in an urban setting. A return to the land can look like a lot of ways, and while the
2: options are many, opportunities to get involved can seem few and far between. Seeing ourselves represented in the great outdoors is also lacking. But these indigenous outdoor enthusiasts are making space for all. From birding to boarding, everyone has a ticket to the great outdoors. Okay, everyone be quiet now. If we hold still long enough, and silent enough, one of these chickadees just might perch on an outstretched hand.
0: (laughs) It's a bit apprehensive right now.
2: Ah well, no perching today.
0: But those little chickadees
2: were curious. Almost as curious as Justin Rasmussen and Bailey Hendry. They are co-founders of the UM Indigenous Birding Club. The club is open to all. They do weekly walks in the warmer seasons and throughout the year hold workshops focused on conservation, community, and the incorporation of Indigenous knowledge into the age-old activity of birding.
0: Um, So we're at Kings Park right now. It's a park in Winnipeg just south of the University of Manitoba campus, Fort Garry campus, Um, and this is where we do a lot of our birding walks for the UM Indigenous Birding Club.
3: We invite uh, students or u of m faculty and staff to join us uh and we usually our walks last about an hour and a half uh just to be able to walk here, look at some birds, and then walk back so
2: What interested you in birding
3: well <laughs> my my background's in uh zoology um so a long time ago, I went to school for to study birds uh but uh I've always had a passion for birds um I think it was probably the first summer job I had in university. Uh, working uh, closely with birds at the uh, Manitoba Wildlife Rehabilitation Organization I think that's really uh, what spurred my interest. And Bailey what about for you?
0: Well for me it was it, it all happened during the pandemic and I feel like a lot of us were feeling a lot of emotions during that time but for me I was quite depressed and like I was trying to find ways that were different than what I knew to cope with what I was going through and uh I just so happened to kind of look out the window like I think a lot of us were at the time because we couldn't really go anywhere and uh, I started noticing these birds that I don't think I really paid much attention to and I started to notice they were really consistent in being there for me so I was able to really to really connect with them on a different level than I really expected and at the time I was also working with um, my elder who started to bring in birds and we were harvesting birds together and so I kind of had that um, spiritual connection to them as well. So it kind of just started tumbling from there and I just kind of grew this passion for them and I really wanted to be able to share that joy with other people so it was awesome that Justin and I get to partner on that and that and be able to share that with others so. And had you met Justin through the birding club or? No we actually uh we worked together as uh, student advisors at the Indigenous Student Center so we were talking about you know we we both have this passion what can we do to kind of invite others to join in on this passion with us and share that joy with other people so kind of just formed from there
2: and Justin were you apprehensive about you know starting a a birding club as an indigenous person
3: um actually no I I think it just kind of all came together really nicely I feel like it brought together all my worlds I enjoy working in student affairs but uh, bringing in the birds so my background in birds but also my indigeneity and bringing all that together into this club uh, it was really important to me, and it, the club is who I am. It's, it's my most authentic self when I'm out here with the club. In terms of wellness, it, it's just getting out on the land, I, I found was so important. And, and birds provide just a little bit more than just going for a walk, right? So they, you really have to use all your senses. You're really in the moment when you're out here looking for birds. Uh, so first, you're listening for them, and and then you're you're you know watching for them, and it, it's really relaxing. It really grounds you. Um, yeah. But I also find kind of just the 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 way we go about it is a little bit different than probably another birding tour or whatever right we just don't see that there's a leader to the tour like our walks there's no like there's no expert everyone brings knowledge Mm -hmm. uh, to our walks and shares that knowledge and I feel like it's a real social way of learning but also very authentic way because we're out there actually looking at the birds we don't want to center Western knowledge either, uh, so people will get like no, will have local knowledge that they can share. Uh, so knowledge they've they've gained from their, like say their grandparents, right? That just know a lot about these birds. Also, mm-hmm. we're not here to like police like the proper names for birds or anything like that. Like so, if if someone calls the bird locally that name, that is proper knowledge as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we're really cognizant of respecting all knowledges and bring them all together. Yeah. Um, I also feel it's really like inquiry-based learning so like we'll be out here we'll see something and you know we don't have the answer but then we're we're asking the questions right and I find that's a really cool way to learn too mm-hmm. so in terms of my Métis ancestry that's that's yeah. how we went about things you just you go out and you do things and that's how you learn about it right and and we learn in a more social way than just someone telling us what the knowledge is so that, that's what it means to me in terms of it's, it's kind of how we go about it.
2: This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. We'll get back to birding in Winnipeg with Justin Rasmussen and Bailey Hendry later in the show, including their picks for the best bird in the world. Right now, we head west and up the snowy mountains of British Columbia. Whistler Resort is synonymous with skiing, snowboarding, and backcountry adventure-seeking. It's also on the shared traditional territories of the Squamish Nation and Lil'wat Nation. Sandy Ward, a member of the Lil'wat Nation, grew up about 20 minutes from there. Growing up, she didn't have a lot of access to the mountains, like tourists and ski enthusiasts, but something about the mountain and the sport called her. She excelled as a competitive half-pipe rider, but these days her passion is the splitboard, which is a snowboard designed for the backcountry. When things get a little rough, the board can split into skis, making it easier to hike uphill and blaze some trail. Blazing trail is something she knows a lot about as the first First Nation splitboard guide in all of Canada. Sandy, welcome to Unreserved. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, Take me to your sanctuary. How would you describe your experience in these mountains? Well, I started snowboarding
1: when I was maybe 15 years old and just immediately fell in love with being outside in the mountains. And um, I started getting into the backcountry, so splitboarding, about maybe 12 years ago. And I just found that it was a better space for me to connect with the land on my own terms, in my own time. So I just I started to learn a lot about like my history and the stories from the Liyot Nation just because I was out in the mountains. And I'd always kind of wonder who was there before me and what happened here and what did our people use the land for. So it's it's been a really, really cool journey and uh, learning a new skill of splitboarding, but also learning
2: about my culture along the way. What kept you from participating in these kinds of activities wh- while you were growing up?
1: Uh, my family wasn't really into skiing as much. We were more into snowmobiles. And I just, I didn't have any friends that were into snowboarding when I was a bit younger. So when I got into high school, that's when like kind of my friend group shifted and they were all skiers or snowboarders from Whistler. So that's it's kind of like what pushed me into getting involved was
2: just peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, good peer pressure though, right? <laughs> Yeah, um, You don't hear a lot about, you know, indigenous snowboarders, skiers, split Um What is it that keeps indigenous people away from those kinds of activities? I don't know. Um, but
1: like growing up and getting involved in the industry, it was kind of weird because I, I felt like I get a little bit of pushback from people within my nation mm. saying that maybe I like, I, I was doing something that more white people were doing and why was I snowboarding? And then I get people from the the industry itself, uh, settlers that were like trying to be like, I don't know, just accepting of me, but it was always kind of felt like tokenism. Mm. So I guess that and the my community pressures like were, were really hard to deal with. So maybe that's what, other youth are going through and just didn't want to push back and just ended up going in, into another career. Mm.
2: Well, way to push back yourself, right through that mountain. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Mo Curry is, is a mountain known to skiers and snowboarders around the world. Can you share the significance of that mountain from from your perspective culturally? Well, we have always looked at that mountain, and it's it's been
1: just so powerful it's a big big massive mountain and there's a lot of traditional stories that are based around it so it's seen as a sacred uh, mountain in our territory so it's it's pretty powerful to be able to to go up there and introduce myself to the mountain and ski it Mm. so that was pretty powerful the first time that I did it
2: and what did it feel like once you pushed off that that edge and We're sliding down that baby. Well, I fell. (laughs) (laughs) I I tumbled into it. Um, It was, it's probably maybe
1: like the steepest mountain I've ever ridden as well. So I didn't really have that knowledge of managing the slough that I was creating. And I kind of got pummeled by that and quickly realized, okay, well, I I have to better manage this. So I, I took a little tumble and got back up and And just started going again, and it was one of the best runs I've ever had in my life. Very humbling,
2: though, I imagine. Yes. (laughs) What is Mount Curry known uh, as in the Lilluit language? It's it's ill. It means slides on the mountain. Slides on the mountain. Literally, figuratively. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, spiritually.
1: <laughs> yes, it's because it's uh, just such a powerful mountain. It's constantly sliding in the summertime. There's landslides in the winter. It's all avalanches, so it's a pretty suitable name for it.
2: And why is it? You mentioned earlier that it was sacred to to the Luwit? What what's sacred about it?
1: We have uh, one of our last known fully trained medicine men. His face is in the mountain itself. And we've also got, so we had these, the Utsima were the transformers, like big supernatural beings that came through our territory, changing men and animals to stone. And there were two hunters up there that were causing mischief and they got turned to stone and they're still there. And there's there's just so many stories that we have that are based around Ill.
2: And yeah, you grow up just listening to those stories all the time. Mm, that's amazing. Um, you created a film called "Slides on the Mountain." What's your film about?
1: So, when I first rode Mount Curry, when I hiked it with my partner, I was the first person from the Liotlat Nation to to snowboard or ski on that mountain. And people come from all over the world to to ride it. And I thought it's not fair. Like we we grew up here. This is our mountain. And so I wanted to change that. So we took two Liotlat brothers. 15 and 17 years old and taught them all the skills that they needed to ride the mountain itself. So we we did a lot of intense, steep skiing training, avalanche uh, safety training, rope rescue stuff uh, to repel into it because it's you have to actually repel into it. It's so steep. <laughs> and um, yeah, then we, we skied it with them. Wow. Why did you want to tell that story? Um, I had showcased two other Liotwet brothers in a mountain biking project and I just, I loved how we were able to showcase our youth because they're so talented in all these sports and I wanted to to be out there and just hey, we are Liotwet, we're here we are good riders
2: and just kind of taking back our, our lands Yeah why, why was it important for you um, or is it important for you as a young Indigenous person to see other young Indigenous people um, reflected in that mountain? I never had Indigenous role models
1: growing up because I was the only one snowboarding. In my nation, they called me, and still call me, the snowboarder because I was the only one doing it. And, And so we have all these really talented youth, but they don't have those role models that look like them. And I think it's really important that... Because now all the, the younger generation are looking at these two boys and being like, wow, they are, they're really good skiers. Maybe I could do that too one day.
2: Hmm, absolutely. And in, in, in addition to, you know, the film, um, you are also the backcountry mentorship team leader with the Indigenous Women Outdoors um, organization. What's that organization all about? So my friend Maya Antone from the Squamish Nation she
1: started it as a hiking program for for her nation to get them like to get people outside and back out onto the land and she was also getting into ski touring in the backcountry herself and she wanted to find other indigenous women that were were touring and so i met up with her because i got tagged in a post because you know the snowboarder (laughs) and we decided to to create this program that would offer other Indigenous women that wanted to get into the backcountry, that kind of zero barrier to knowledge and gear and everything you need to, to learn how to safely access the backcountry. And we're going into our fourth year of operation, and it's, it's been really, really beautiful to just see the women coming back year after year and gaining the knowledge and experience and confidence to go out on their own and Mm -hmm. mentor the new group of people that we have every year.
2: Can you share a story with me um, where you've, you know, turned somebody who had never maybe been on a mountain or had skied or snowboard and is now doing it regularly?
1: Actually, one of my really good friends, it's not skiing or snowboarding, but mountain biking. She was in a really rough place in her life and she came to IWO for a mountain bike program that I had organized and she'd never done anything like that before but now she's in love with it and she's actually uh, a guide for me in the youth program so we have we offer our participants the opportunity to Uh, go for, like, guiding certifications and instructing certifications, and they'll often come and help out with the youth programs, which is amazing, and that's what this lady has done, and she's completely, like, turned her life around, and it was just really beautiful to watch over the last, I think,
2: three years. Why do you think that 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 connection that that you make and others in your organization make with the youth or the women and with the mountain, why do you think that that connection changes lives it's just getting out onto the land like i feel like we're always taught
1: that we need to be out on a more traditional sense berry picking or or hunting or or things like that when we can just go out and have fun on it too you know and i think it's really empowering to be able to go out and experience the mountains in a not so traditional way and and just enjoy it with your friends.
2: What do you think w- it will take to get more young people or, you know, women or, you know, anybody from your nation, from your community, participating in all of the backcountry that, that your area has to offer?
1: We are working on it right now. I'm running some programs with Arcterics Academy in a couple of weeks that are specifically for local Indigenous youth that want to learn how to splitboard or ski tour. And we have another program uh, through the same academy for the IWO crew to gain more experience and confidence in leading. So just having those programs is making that shift. And it all started with Aaron Marchant from Squamish Nation, who started the First Nation snowboard team back in 2003. Mm. And we're seeing a huge shift in who goes skiing and snowboarding. There's like, we, we run our program every Sunday and we have, I think it's
2: like 70 or 80 youth that show up. Wow, that's amazing. So the re- reaction and the response has been um, big, I suppose. It's grown
1: so much. When I started with them in the first year, there was like 12 of us. And now we've got like 70 youth on the mountain every weekend. That's beautiful.
2: Yeah. And what did these youth tell you you know, after the first time or second time or 100th time that they've been down?
1: They love it. I I've been teaching with the program for, I guess, maybe like... 18 or 19 years and to see the kids that I taught nineteen years ago are now instructing for the program. It's really cool. Like I I just love seeing the happiness each day Mm. that we get to go out and the kids they might come from a traumatic background and getting them out on the mountain, you see them smiling and laughing and it's just really, really amazing. It's it's the same with the, the mountain bike program that I run. Some of the kids are coming from really, really dark spots and to get them out and they're just so stoked is, is beautiful.
2: Uh, Earlier, you had said that, um, you know, you're known as the lone snowboarder, the snowboarder. But now you've brought in a whole sort of generation of, of new snowboarders. So when you're at the top of that mountain now and looking down and seeing the path that you've literally created, what are the things that you see and think about? I'm pretty
1: proud that I stuck with it after being told that it wasn't a space for me. Like, literally, I was hitchhiking and a guy told me that I would never be a splitboard guide because... I was a split (laughs) boarder and that wasn't a thing, um, back then anyways, like 12 years ago. Uh, but having that perseverance to push through and push back with all of the negative comments that I've received, I'm really, really proud that the kids don't have to go through
2: that today. Mm, Absolutely. And what is your hope for the future of this mountain and of snowboarding and, being on it and connecting with that, you know, that land that is is part of your people.
1: I really hope that we see more of the youth go towards a career in the outdoors. And it is happening. There have been a couple of of girls from the the youth program that have come up to me and asked, how do I get a job in the outdoors like you? And so things are changing, and it is becoming more of a space for us. And to just, to have local people teaching the local kids, this is going to be so cool. Like the kids are going to see that that's an opportunity for them.
2: Mm, That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing some of that with us today. Thank you for having me. Sandy Ward is a member of the Lilwat Nation. She is an avid snowboarder, mountain biker, and climber, and she co-leads the backcountry mentorship team with Indigenous Women Outdoors.
0: Oh boy. (laughs)
2: Canada. What Well, doesn't it derive from a Ganyihtiyo no, word? It's village. So
1: it's as Indigenous people, we are used to our stories getting a little twisted. So listen up as we set the record straight. I'm Ganyihtiyo. Please join me as we hear from dozens of Indigenous people. Together, we will decolonize our words and our minds on the Telling Our Twisted Histories podcast. You can find episodes on the CBC
2: Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild, the cousin who cannot work her binoculars.
3: Oh, yeah, that's yeah, a lot of They're moving, moving
2: now, I see.
3: Yeah, there's a couple of them a
2: of them. I'm back on my walk with Justin Rasmussen and Bailey Hendry, this time learning about how to spot a woodpecker.
3: Uh, it's tough to see. Um, we're not that close well, you're to good. it. good. But, yeah, it, it's jumping up in the trees there. So a lot of birding is is just staring up at trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you hear the bird, and then you stare up at the tree, and you look for movement. And it's easier when there's no leaves, so right now it's pretty good. And then eventually you'll see the bird hop, and then you keep your eyes on it, and you put your binoculars over your eyes, and then you'll be able to see it. But that's probably, we'll see other hairy woodpeckers. Uh, so that's probably not the best look we'll get today. So.
2: We'll get back to Justin Rasmussen and Bailey Hendry later in the show. Today, we're getting outside and meeting Indigenous nature enthusiasts who are empowering others to connect with the land.
4: i split the tree almost in half.
2: For 16 years, Caleb Musgrave has been teaching people how to survive in the bush through his company, Canadian Bushcraft. But right now, it's almost sugar bush season. And you'll find Caleb getting ready to tap the maple trees, collect the sap, And make some yummy maple sugar. He's happy to teach you, but first, you gotta find him.
4: The
2: The back road to the camp where Caleb sets up his sugar bush has seen better days. It's a long, winding dirt road covered in potholes and lined on either side by cattail filled marshland. The camp is located within Hiawatha First Nation. On the north shore of Rice Lake, in southern Ontario. Our producer, Rhiannon Johnson, grew up here. She drove down that bumpy road to see how Caleb is preparing for the sugar bush season. But first, he had a little surprise to show her before they went off into the woods. Oh yeah, we definitely got one. Oh my God.
4: <gasps> okay, I just gotta break that hole a little bit bigger.
2: Caleb is chipping away oh, at some ice from around a culvert in the marsh. This is one of the places where he sets up winter animal traps.
4: So, this is a wajashk, or jashk, this is a muskrat.
2: And what he catches, he gives to elders who can no longer trap for themselves.
4: I've caught 15 out of this culvert so far, just this one trap in the last three months, uh, and they've all been going to uncle.
2: Let's head into the camp now to hear what else Caleb is doing to prepare for the sugar bush.
4: Hello. Pimodash, um, Skoldeong, and Donjaba. My name is Caleb from Hiawatha First Nation, the Mississaugas of Rice Lake, and we're in my sugar bush here in the community of Hiawatha. And uh, we're just kind of exploring, seeing what's going on right now. That's kind of what I do. So today we're checking traps, uh, we're getting some materials that I need to make some birch bark baskets for the upcoming sugar bush season. I'm just going to chop at the base, push it over, chop on the other side. So, sugar bush is a beautiful place in the woods where you have this kind of mixed hardwood ecosystem or ecology that you have different kinds of trees growing in. But the number one, that one that we're looking for is the sugar maples. Uh, Red maple will work as well. Silver maple can work as well, but the sugar maple has the most sugar content. And so we come into these woods and they'll be, you know, shaded in by hemlock trees and sometimes white pines and spruce, but mostly hemlocks and what we do out here is we gather that sap and there's a whole lot of different ways people do it across Turtle Island. The way that we do it is with modern spiles. So you drill into the tree, put in a metal spile, sometimes a plastic spile, I prefer using the metal ones and then putting a bucket on that and you collect the sap on a daily basis, sometimes semi-daily. So every couple of days, sometimes it is really running, it's twice or three times a day. Uh, it all comes down to what time of day it is or what time of the year it is. And so we come out in late winter, early spring, and that's when we first start to take a look at the woods observe the woods, see what's going on. And then we begin to tap when we feel like it's correct. When it, when all the signs are pointing, yes, we go, we go and tap the trees and we collect that sap. Some people put up big modern evaporators and some people are using like even electrolysis and reverse osmosis to get the side the sugary syrup out of there. But we boil, we just put a cauldron over the fire and we boil in a traditional cast iron cauldron. We usually have one or two going. Uh, some years we have three going, which is really awesome to have. And we just boil it down. And a lot of people stop once it gets to syrup. We actually prefer to go all the way down to sugar. We like to to make um, zinsabaquat, maple sugar. Uh, It keeps better. It tastes better, in my opinion. Uh, I'm not a big guy on flapjacks and waffles, so I don't get to use maple syrup a lot. So I get to use maple sugar in my coffee. I get to use it in baked goods, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of our traditional cooking that we do with wild rice or acorns, I use maple sugar. And it's a beautiful process because you can spend it. Sometimes it's just a week. Sometimes it's three weeks. Sometimes it's a whole month. You're out here boiling and boiling and boiling. And the whole time you get to see the forest reawaken. Zigwan is one of our words for early spring in the language. And it's talking about that life coming back into the trees. It's talking about the sap flowing. And that is our new year as Nishnabek people. That's our new year, not, you know, January 1st. It's Zigwan. And so when we get to that time of Ziguan, it's literally watching everything come back to life from buds unfurling into leaves to little trout lilies and wild leeks popping up out of the snow, all the way to the Canada geese and the ducks coming back. And then you see new life in all forms happening around you as the ice breaks and the, the ice recedes and melts away. You start to see the fish spawning. You start to hear spring peepers. You start to see all this stuff happening around you and experiencing it even scent wise, you're going to smell things happening in the woods that you didn't smell for months and months and months because it's finally happening again. So there's all kinds of scent from the beautiful aroma of like the trees coming back to life and the smell of sap and the smell of all this beautiful stuff of the earth, all the way to skunks and bears. There's all kinds of smells happening out here and sounds and sights and textures. Like even like the ground feels different when you walk on it as the spring comes. It goes from being really solid, to really boggy to suddenly really firm again, but in a different way. It's a softer firmness, it's not frozen soil, it's just firm soil. Uh, everything, every texture, every sense you can think of is coming back to life in Ziguan in that sugar bush time. And so, when we're here in the sugar bush, we get to experience that, celebrate that, and, and really immerse ourselves while we get to also notice everything else happening. It's like you get to really check your calendar. Engage how everything's going to be. If there wasn't a lot of snow, if there wasn't a lot of ice, if the sap's not running great, you may know that there's going to be probably really dry times coming up that summer. So you better prepare for that and grow the right things and harvest the right things and not take too much. A lot of the knowledge that people are now celebrating as bushcraft was taken from us through residential schools and colonization. We were not allowed to practice these ways. We were supposed to stop doing these things. Mm-hmm. And now it's being taught by other people to us again that are non-indigenous and there's nothing wrong with that per se, but you lose context within that and that can be extrapolated to sugar bush, how many people were teaching for years and still do that you boiled sugar out of the sap by putting it in a hollow log and throwing hot rocks in there. Talking about how, yeah, this is how the Indians did it and when you pick up that sap, that syrup or whatever that hot liquid is out of that, out of that wooden bucket, it's full of gravel, it's full of grit, it's full of ash and it's disgusting. All the, And you tell that to people and they're like, oh, so your ancestors maybe didn't make syrup. And there's even a story now that the pilgrims and the pioneers and the settlers showed us how to do this stuff with cauldrons and kettles. Yeah, we had clay pots for 5,000 years. This is the nuance that we lose, the context that we lose when we just defer to Western lenses of land skills and bushcraft and bush skills. And so learning that nuance and learning the real context comes from spending time with our elders, spending time with knowledge holders of our communities and learning the details that you have to know to make things work. Either you're going to have delicious syrup at the end or you have a toxic compound that's going to get a lot of people sick at best. If you spend time on the land with indigenous people, we have that context often from generational knowledge that we, was, that we carry yeah. ourselves or that we learned along the way. I didn't learn all this sugar bush stuff from people in Hiawatha. I learned some from people in Hiawatha. I had to spend time in Michigan. I had to spend time in Manitoba. I had to spend time in Northern Ontario, Quebec, learning these things from a lot of different people. And so going to indigenous knowledge holders of bushcraft, survival skills, whatever you want to call it, traditional lifeway skills, whatever it is, is paramount if you want to truly grasp what is going on on our landscape. But if you want to really dip your toes in and fully understand how to live here you got to learn from the people who've lived here since time immemorial. And that's the real goal here for Canadian Bushcraft and myself. I'm big on trying to share language. I am not fluent in any way, shape, or form, but I spend a lot of time with amazing knowledge holders of the language, and I try to glean from them what I can. And so whenever we're running a sugar bush workshop or a trapping workshop or uh, ricing workshops, anything like that... We try to integrate language, we try to integrate our history as well. My background uh, academically is anthropology, as well as what's often referred to as ethnobotany, which is a human relationship with plants. And so anytime I can bring in our history, bring in our traditional ways of doing things, we do. Uh, We do tap with modern equipment here at our sugar bush, but we also tap with traditional equipment, which is why I'm trying to make birch bark baskets right now get everything ready. Tapping trees in that old way with a hatchet instead of with a spile or a drill, uh, all those kinds of things that we try to show and integrate into our ways because it's also, in a lot of ways, more sustainable. And a lot of the time it's slow going. I could go out with a fan boat and gather tons of wild rice in a day, or I can go out with a canoe and two sticks with a paddler with me and knock a bunch of rice into the canoe. And Yeah, that's going to take a lot longer, but man, do you really get to see what's going on out there? You get to see all the different kinds of little arthropods living on the rice. You get to see what kind of birds are living out there. The animals aren't scattering as you come in with that big, loud boat or machine you can really be part of the landscape and that to me is the part that we're all missing is it's almost like what some people refer to as nature deficit disorder is we're losing that part of ourselves as human beings and so to have that fully integrated using traditional knowledges traditional language understanding the landscape from our Anishinaabe pedagogy and our lens it's it's mandatory in my opinion it's, it's necessary to be able to thrive out here we have all kinds of folks and all kinds of people come out this way uh, and take workshops with us. We have everything from just regular, you know, I guess you could say civilians that are just interested in this kind of stuff, just individuals, families, uh, people from all walks of life. We have, you know, new Canadians, old Canadians like ourselves, the Anishinaabek folk and everybody, uh, university groups, military organizations, government organizations, non, uh, non-profit organizations all come out from, you know, one or two people up to 30 people come into these workshops because they need... They see something that they, that they appreciate, whether it's for professional development at their own work, uh, all the way to just, it's something that enriches them, or they too have that feeling that we're missing something of our past, and they're wanting to come back out and reconnect with that. We've had people that have been taking classes with us for 15 plus years now with us, and I got to see them come into the woods almost scared of it. And like, they would go back to town to use the bathroom kind of thing, and they would bring in their drinking water they'd bring in all their resources everything they would it was like bringing a giant backpack and they would just live off of that backpack like a scuba diver with their with their diving kit and then over the years they start to integrate the skills that they're learning and they're using less and less gear and there's this old adage in bushcraft old being like 40 years or so the more you know the less you carry the less you know the more you carry And so seeing people come out with less and less equipment and less and less gear and less and less resources from outside of the woods and integrating what they've learned and supplementing what they need from the land has been a huge change. But even on our one day workshops, you see people come out and they know, you know, a tick on the polar bear standing on the tip of an iceberg of information and they have certain ideas that they have about what it is to be on the land, what it is to be indigenous on the land. And then by the end of the day they have this broad, much broader, I wouldn't say like they don't know everything. I don't know everything. So they definitely don't know everything if they're just learning it for the first time. But they come up with a much, it's like the blinders are off the horse. They can see a whole lot more going on around them. They have a better understanding of the relationships. And it's fun, like you'll see people come out and they're like stomping through in their muck boots and their heavy boots. And they get out to the camp and they start learning about all the integration of relationships on the land. From the mycology under our feet to the plants that are waiting dormant under this dirt, waiting for it to warm up and they can grow. And when they leave, they're actually walking much more tenderly on the ground. And they they understand that again. And it's not that they had to learn it, they had to relearn it. We all have this knowledge. It doesn't belong to me and I'm giving it to you. It already belongs to you, you already have it. You just need to relearn it, reconnect with it. Come Sugarbush, I'll tell people, this is my favorite thing to do. This is my favorite time of year. And then we get, we get into August and it's almost racing season. I'll be like, this is my favorite thing to do. And as soon as the snow falls and the ice starts to form and I can go out and trap, I'm like, this is my favorite thing to do. And in the summertime, picking berries is my favorite thing to do. But yeah, Sugar Bush, because it's our new year, it's like it holds a really special spot to me because this is like, in a lot of ways, one of the most sacred things you can do. Oh, there's, a fa- there's a good quote that I've heard for years now, the land is ceremony. And so I come out here and I'll have, you know, 50 people with me, five people with me or I'm completely alone and I have the exact same feeling of joy because I'm in Ziguan, I'm out there on the land, I'm tapping the trees, I'm observing the animals, I'm observing the lifestyle, the life cycle of the land. And that is so much joy in there. But it, that also comes back to ricing and acorn harvesting and growing food and, and everything else I do. I enjoy all of it or else I wouldn't do it. This was where my grandparents hunted, trapped and sugared. This is where my great, 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 great grandparents hunt, trapped, sugared and riced and everything else. And so being on this specific section of land in the community has always been just a a reconnect for me and a, a big emotional um, joy to see this place kind of being put back to the use it used to have. Um, being on the land is where I feel calm. Being on the land is where I feel whole. Being on the land is where I feel safe.
2: Caleb Musgrave is Mississauga and from Hiawatha First Nation. This is unreserved on CBC Radio One, Sirius XM, US Public Radio, and Native Voice One. I'm Rosanna Dearchild. Let's get back to our walk and conversation with the two leads of the UM Indigenous Birding Club. Bailey Hendry and Justin Rasmussen started the club a few years ago for students and faculty looking for a nature break in their day, and to share their passion for birds.
3: We didn't know who was going to show up. We want to reduce barriers to participating in birding, right? So we want to reduce all barriers for our birding walks. We don't take RSVPs or anything. If you show up, you feel like birding that day, you come. Uh, we we meet at the Louis Riel statue at 11:30. Oh, very cultural. Yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. at 11:30. Uh, yeah, it was on Wednesdays last year. This year we're changing it to Thursdays so people show up. We have binoculars for them. We go for a walk. Uh, and we just try to get you know people to see a few birds and and start enjoying it.
2: You mentioned earlier that you you came to birding because of because of the COVID mm-hmm. um, lockdown, um, and I imagine that would be the same for for many people who mm-hmm. take part in outdoor activities. What has been the like how, what has been the effect on on participants that mm-hmm. you've seen?
3: Well, there's been a few things, right? Um, the students that join us. You know at the start of the walk they look a little bit nervous Um, and then by the end of it uh, there's really a sense of calm Mm -hmm. Um, a sense of also confidence um, which is really neat I know for me um, yeah I'm sitting at my computer in the morning and just feeling overwhelmed I'll take like a quick you know my lunch break out here and I can go back and I just feel so much more relaxed so much more like everything's put back into place right uh, so much more grounded and just ready to to move forward so and I really hope that students feel the same way as well mm-hmm. um, the other effect too is uh, really building a sense of community it's kind of neat but like we're in a very like hierarchical institution at the U of M uh, but when we come out here on bird walks so we have know we have deans we have faculty we have staff we have students that come out but we kind of shed all those titles right and we're just people kind of having like a real experience together not having to worry about you know i'm supposed to be so such a way because i'm you know a dean or something so yeah. it, it's really neat and it's really good for community building because we can connect on such a human level uh just being in nature just experiencing beauty right
0: yeah that shared experience i think is really important to our club mm-hmm. um another thing that i see too happening is the folks who are joining us um, who might not have like that awareness of you know that grounding awareness They're able to really tune into their five senses when they're with us so that's what kind of leads to that calmness we can actively see them doing that work Mm. even if it doesn't really feel like they're doing any work it's really an active experience for them to to learn how to ground themselves in an urban setting so i feel like it's easy to go to like birds hill park and like obviously you're in the bush you're like wow this feels awesome um but it's totally different when you're in an urban park Mm -hmm. yeah
3: Can you tell me about what kind of protocols you follow, the bird community? Our primary concern, our primary focus uh, is the wellness and and the health of the bird population. So uh, we try to stay far enough away that we're not causing them to flush or alter their behavior in any way. Uh, So that's why we use binoculars. We can keep our distance and uh, we don't use playback, things like that, uh, just to make sure we're we're not interfering with, with their daily lives, right? um we want this to be sustainable we want them uh you know to be able to breed uninterrupted so we if even if we find nests we stay very very far away uh, from them just to make sure that they can uh, breed properly so there's a code of bird ethics uh, that's available on the bird studies Canada website and that's what we follow yeah
2: when you say playback what is what does that mean
3: uh, playback would just be bird calls it, it often attracts birds because they're like hey who's this in my territory uh, so then they'll come try to check it out We we don't do that we try to be as as invisible as possible when we're yeah. out here yeah
0: we also uh, have a, sometimes we'll bring our cameras out as well like both Justin and I have Um, Nikon cameras that we use to get photos for our Instagram and um, it's the same deal with bird photography we also try not to bait our animals as well like we don't want to throw seed out and then sit really close to it and then you know try and bait them to get photos of the birds we try to get them as naturally as possible and their habitats that they feel most comfortable in so Uh Let's talk about favorite birds. What's your favorite bird
3: and why? <laughs> oh, without a doubt, it's the northern sawed owl. Um, just because they are so—they're—I mean—they're I mean, extremely cute. They're—they're they're surreal. When you find one, they're just perched on a branch. They're a tiny little owl, and uh, it, it just doesn't feel like they should exist. Like they're so cool. So that's—that's that's why they're my favorite bird. They also migrate fairly long distances, uh, which I find kind of cool. For an owl, so and for you, Bailey.
0: For me, it's by far the white-breasted nuthatch. Um, It's a bird that's here all year round, um, which I think is why I've kind of grown a fascination for them because they're just always there. And in the winter, they're super fluffy. Like, they fluff up their feathers. They're so chunky looking, and they're really, really cute. Um, and I love their calls, too. They kind of, the way that I describe it is they kind of sound like clown horns when they're... Clown all, horns. Yeah, it's very <laughs> cute. Um, and they also have really beautiful, intricate plumage, which I think is just really beautiful to look at. Um, I love taking photos of them because I just just think they're, like, one of the most beautiful birds out there justin likes to say that i'm like connected to them in a way because i'm always the first one to point one out when i'm out there so yeah it's your it's your sacred animal (laughs) yes
2: (laughs) let's talk a little bit about the language around um birding and birds in general um how important is it to include or incorporate or acknowledge indigenous you know names for some of these beautiful birds
0: i think it's super important um i i think that if we don't acknowledge it we're gonna lose that and um that's a you know one of the things that justin and i really talked about when we first started this club was preserving that knowledge and uplifting that knowledge so people can hear more about it because there are names for birds that have been around for thousands of years and uh I don't think a lot of people know about that. So I think it's really important that we share these traditional names and whether it be in Anishinaabe, Moen or Michif, whatever language we're talking about, I think it's really important because our youth need to hear these things.
2: Mm. Justin, what can you tell me about the growing call to change the names of birds, which are you know, often named for those who quote-unquote discover them?
3: Well, first I'd just like to say that I, I think indigenous, like there's indigenous knowledge on a lot of birds, right? So like I studied uh, brood parasitism. So those are birds that lay their eggs in the nests of other birds uh, and then leave the parental care up to this other species. So they never actually raise their own young or or hatch their own eggs So, or build a nest. So the thing is, is indigenous folks have known about this for millennia but we kind of see it you know well in the literature you know who was the first to report it but so i always try to make sure that i acknowledge you know the indigenous folks that knew about this knowledge whenever i talk about any bird species or anything we know about birds Uh, in terms of the the names i think going to functional names is uh is definitely the way to go And I I don't think it'll be that difficult. I mean, we've changed names in the past before that were like problematic names. And functional names makes it more accessible for more people to get into birding and to enjoy all the benefits of it. I also think the indigenous names, we really need to go that way as well. I uh, did some work, luckily, in New Zealand. The bird guide, the official bird guide for New Zealand, has both the English and the Maori names, which I find absolutely amazing. Uh, so I'd like to see that in our North American guides eventually. So, when you say functional names, what do you mean? Well, uh, just kind of like names that describe the bird, right? So, like red-headed woodpecker would be a you know functional name. Its head is red, so <laughs> it makes it you know it's very descriptive, right? So it's functional.
2: What advice would you give someone who? who loves birds and maybe wants to start birding,
0: hmm. how
2: would they start, Bailey?
0: That's a really good question. Um, well, I think just kind of speaking from my experience, you just got to look out a window and like <laughs> all you got to do there is There you bird watching. Yeah, literally, <laughs> just download Merlin Bird ID if you have um, a device that you can download it on and just look out a window and, and do your best to kind of challenge yourself and get out there and actually um learn these species that are around us every day Um, another thing to do too is to not be afraid to join like birding groups that are in your area um, or even if it's like as simple as just joining a Facebook page and like of seeing what's being posted on there because you could actually learn a lot from other people too. I think one of the things that I did was I kind of pushed myself out of my comfort zone and did that because I'm a pretty shy introverted person. I ended up just pushing myself to to get more involved in the birding community and learn more and I think that's kind of you know helped me be where I am today and how much I know about
3: birds so.
2: And what about Justin what advice do you have for future birders?
3: I think just get out there and start, you know, learning one bird at a time. And uh, before you know it, you'll know a whole list of birds. And it'll just be like easy, right, Tidy these birds. Yeah, it's just get good getting out in nature. The more you can be outside, the better. That's the way I see it.
2: Let's go find some birds. Bailey Hendry and Justin Rasmussen are the co-founders of UM Indigenous Birding Club. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Kim Casher, Rhiannon Johnson, Zoe Tennant, Laura Bone-Steubing, Danielle Piper, and Issa Kixon. Find more on our website cbc.ca/unreserved on the CBC Listen app or your favorite pod places. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty One Territory. And Oscar Mitanawa.' to say.